Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. How are you doing? Uh, Thank you for inviting us on your podcast. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, it's been a long time coming and, you know, I mean... Yeah, no, but thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. It has been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing this for forever and it feels like now is like a particularly good time, mad time, but good time, good time to do it. For those who, you know, may be unfamiliar, would you mind introducing yourself briefly, please? Yes. So I am Tim Exile. I've had a few different lives, I suppose. My, My first professional life was as a recording artist making records releasing them on record labels and then I kind of got bored of that I well specifically I got bored of sitting behind a screen arranging blocks of waveforms and you know for me music has always always been something something to do something that's communicative and real-time spontaneous so that kind of inspired me to get into tech to start building my own instruments and then I built this whole system really for improvising electronic music which well actually Imogen Heap named the flow machine so thank you Imogen and so then I I kind of did a stint touring as a sort of improvising electronic musician and and then that led to a few I guess kind of like TED style appearances where I was evangelizing for why the whole world should be improvising everything and and then I started to spin some of my like inventions just for me into products for other people teamed up with like native instruments to make a few plug-in instruments and uh, and then a few years ago I founded Endless which is a well it's a it's a platform for live collaborative music creation and it's really i guess it's it's my attempt to kind of bring the joy that i got from improvising to the world very cool there's a lot to to cover there but i have one question first were you ever really able to to like tear yourself away from the screen <laughs> did that ever actually work i guess my yeah my kind of screeny deep dive time migrated from like micro editing waveforms into shuffling around kind of blocks and wires in reactor which is this kind of like vision <laughs> node based programming environment but yeah i guess that that <laughs> it's hard to get away from the staring at screens time and and now it's sort of migrated more into spreadsheets and calls and product <laughs> designs and so funny. Yeah, I, I was thinking that when we put an ensemble together, it was the same thing, same impulse. I was like, I want to get away from my alone time in the studio, the screen time. And what happened was I got to do all this really awesome recording with this ensemble. But then I had like a mountain of editing that I had to do alone afterwards in the studio. So I was like, no, I can never escape. Yeah. And I feel like it, also thinking back to some of the instruments that you've brought into the world, I'm thinking specifically about the mouth. Which, by mm. the way, is mm, an incredible, amazing, incredible well, instrument. No, but ge- but genuinely, and like, it's funny how, in a sense, you know, we've been having a lot of conversations. We had Hanoi on, who mm. worked obviously on Google's DDSP. We spoke with the Never Before Heard Sounds guys, who were you know involved in, in Magenta in different capacities. And like, it's funny in a way how prophetic actually the mouth was of you know taking a vocal input and trying to at least kind of 
remove people from the midi tetris or waveform assemblage as you just put it mm. path it kind of makes a lot of sense that, that you know you've been you've been working on these instruments for some time and 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 i think over time that that approach is going to be become more and more common at mm-hmm. least i'm seeing that right like we were talking to hanoi who's now at tiktok and he's you know thinking of ways to integrate timbre transfer into tiktok directly so people can kind of just you know, create music using their phone, communicating with people. And I'm like, oh, you know, like Tim, you've been, you've been on this for, for some time and it's actually really coming. It's really coming to fruition, I believe. Yeah. Interesting. And it's interesting that it seems to be AI tools that, that are actually really delivering that. I mean, I've, I've always been a fan of turning gesture into sound, but I think, you know, my, my approach has always been pretty dumb. <laughs> well, no, just sort of basic as in not, I you know, know about not <laughs> leveraging, I guess, not leveraging neural networks and maybe leveraging product design and I guess kind of really simple macroizing of controls. I'm more into finding single controls that really have an impact that you're because I guess in in music tools you have the two extremes. You've got things that really keep you on rails that might give you a really great first experience, but it's like a very short runway of things you can do. And then at the other extreme you've got things with all the parameters in the world. And I guess my my whole journey really has been discovering the sweet spot between those two things that really allow you to be performative as a musician. And it's just really interesting to see how the various different technological approaches have kind of ended up meeting in this similar kind of place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and it, it's funny how, you know, thinking about like the act of making music, you kind of, it feels almost like the, you know, those are separate, it's a separate act than the act of kind of programming music. And what I really like about some of the instruments you've made prior, and I think this also applies to Endless somehow, is it's kind of meeting people where they're at in how they're kind of telling the world they want to make music. I give a classic example, right? And I mean, of course, like DDSP and like a lot of this neural network stuff is super cool and fun. That being said, you know, some of those tools were, I mean, they were very cumbersome before, but you could do timbre transfer with the, oh, what's it called? The the Kima, the Kima system. Right. right? Yeah. Which was like the super expensive processing unit, hardware unit that you could have there, where you were able to do things like morphs and, and tonal transfers and stuff like this. And it's like, what's kind of funny and, and kind of cool is that ultimately, you know, this idea of using gesture to control stuff and moving away from the computer it just feels to me like what people want to do anyway. Classic example being like, you know, I know this with Holly and like certainly when I work on stuff like, you know, our phone's notes app is like probably one of the most used musical tools, right? But then you have this challenge of like, you sing something into the phone and then afterwards you you work like a weird like archaeologist, like trying to think of a way to recreate the timbral qualities of whatever was in your head at that moment in a programming environment of the door right and it's like yeah so so i think i think what you're doing in a weird way it's like it's kind of a jump toward what people want yeah and and it also feels that there, there's another kind of road into this way of being musical that started with DJing. And, you know, I remember when I was, what, 14 years old and I got some really shitty belt drive turntables and, you know, there was so little that you could do with DJing then. But what I thought, you know, what I thought you could do with DJing wasn't possible then. And 
it kind of is possible now, but all these, you know, yeah. like remix decks and cue points and all the effects that you've got. I mean, that, to my mind, that really did, delivers that kind of gestural expression in music in a different way. So I guess you know, we've got this kind of the, the AI route, the, I guess, instrument design route, and then I guess kind of interpretation of pre-existing music. We kind of went through this phase where it was, there was almost like this binary between embodied musicking and electronic music. It was like, it had to be kind of like one or the other. And that was always really alien to me. And I always wanted, that's why I started using the voice and processing the voice to find a way for those worlds to really fit together. And that's what I love so much about what you do is it feels like you're, you know, you're not like reverting to some kind of like idea of like what, what's natural or, you know, kind of like outdated ideas like this. You're really embracing the new but like trying to still find this really embodied approach to musicking and collaboration with other people. So yeah, I could see machine learning being a, a really exciting new horizon for your particular approach to musicking. Oh, totally. I mean, the, you know, one of the things that we're building towards at Endless anyway, is this idea of, you know, more of a sort of protocol and an ecosystem. And, you know, tool makers are a really important part of that ecosystem and you know today like endless is the only tool maker but what we want to do is kind of design technology APIs, apis and an economy for tool makers to plug into and so i think when you know i i know i hear mutterings that there are amazing new ai driven music creation tools coming down the horizon you know some of them are some of them are already here and there's a lot more coming and i think you know one of the things that I think Endless really does deliver is just, yeah, impactful, instant, spontaneous music making. And yeah, I, the idea that one day Endless could have embedded kind of AI enhanced tools is, yeah, is super exciting. Yeah, well, let's talk about it a little bit because we, we've referred to Endless as if people know as if people know what it is, and that's partly on us because <laughs> we know what it is. But but outside of you know your brief introduction, how how would you how would you discuss for people who are maybe not familiar? How would you talk about you know the interaction with Endless? Like, what exactly does the tool do, and and how are people being led to use it? So the the quickest way to accelerate to understanding the basics of what Endless is is as a social loop pedal. So that's what we're kind of that's those are probably the three words that really best describe it most instantly so you know if you're a musician you've probably or even if you're you know you're into music and you've been to a few live performances you'll have seen people using loop pedals where they sing something in play something in loop it and then layer another layer on top and in its like at the very core endless turns that into something that's multiplayer and it's online and real time so essentially you've got this kind of cloud-based real-time loop collaboration device that so you can create a jam throw out the jam link to friends invite them in to collaborate with you and you basically add layers using our format, which is the riff, which is essentially a a bundle of eight layers of looped audio. And you can, you know, all participants in the jam can then either take a layer or multiple layers and remix them through some effects or change the configurations of the layers by, you know, changing the levels or mutes, and then also lay down new material on top of it. So, I mean, that's like the, that's the core of the technology in terms of like how, you know, the nuts and bolts of how it works. In terms of what, I mean, the, the, the mission really, well, it, it, it ties into everything that, that I guess I, you know, since I picked up the violin when I was age five, music has always been something embodied. It's something 
for me, music is best when it's something that happens when you move your body and stops when you stop moving your body. And uh, particularly it's best when you can use it as a device to be to be conversational. So you can kind of musically put something out there and then someone out there can send something back. And, you know, in that sort of conversational exchange, you somehow the world gets bigger because you're you're sparring off other perspectives, musical perspectives, or you know the same in conversation. You know, like it's it very much like this. We we are you know to an extent we have very overlapping worldviews, but there are probably perspectives where we differ, and that's where it gets really exciting. And I think the same applies to music. Okay, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. Is it so? It's an in-browser multi-user DAW that anyone can kind of edit or add to. So if, if one person or anyone who's, I guess, invited to the group, right? Yeah. Like, you have to, so if anyone from that group mutes a track, for example, does that happen for everyone? Or is that just kind of locally? Um... So you have to, you have to commit it. So to dive deeper into how the tech works, it's basically built on something that's quite similar to what Dropbox is built on. And the, so the files that you're sending and that are getting synced are this riff format, which is basically a bunch of metadata about the, you know, up to eight different layers in there, plus, you know, the tempo they're at, the key they're in, and their their various different settings like levels and mutes. So if you if you say you receive a riff and there's eight layers and you decide to mute a couple of layers, you then have to hit a commit riff button to then send that back in its new altered form. And then as soon as everybody else in the chat, you know, if they're online at the same time as you, as soon as they receive that, local devices get snapped to that state, if you see what I mean. But they have to choose to snap to the updated state. No, it's forced. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, so if one of your collaborators just like nukes one of the things that you're working on or like one of the tracks that you think is essential in the mix, then you just have to kind of like go with it. <laughs> well, there's also a, there's a full history of everything right. that's ever happened. So okay. it's, it's additive rather than destructive. So if someone, I mean, this does happen in jam. It's amazing, like observing the etiquette that, that has emerged mm -hmm. in the endless community. And there's a lot, there's an entire lexicon of words that describe various different techniques, various different things that emerge in, in jams. But yeah, I mean, if someone, if someone is really trolling the jam, then <laughs> you can just flip back to an old riff and then recommit that riff. And, you know, one of the things that, that happens, it's sometimes a bit, you get tempo wars. So somebody be like, well, change the tempo of the riff, commit it. And then suddenly, you know, an 80 BPM riff is now playing at 120 BPM. And then someone will be like, nope, stick it back to 80s. <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, it is, it's very game-like and it's, you know, it can, it can become adversarial, which is, which is kind of, you know, obviously we didn't design, we didn't design it to be <laughs> adversarial, but that's, you know, that's what happens in, well, all situations where there's a very kind of real time interaction between people where, you know, one individual can have a, a large impact on an entire group of people in real time. I mean, that happens in like, you know, improv sessions, of course, like somebody mm. will just like speed up or somebody will just like take over and dominate. And then, you know, you might not get invited back or all these kind of dynamics are just things that you learn how to kind of communicate with other people. I think it's really interesting. will be really interesting to see how that kind of differs in an online space. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Also, also, you may have just coined the, the generative adversarial music. Exactly. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, like the one thing that's important to talk about here as well, which is which differs, we'll talk a little bit about some of the crypto applications later, but like is that people actually use this tool. 
right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of people currently who already use this tool to make music, which I think is pretty cool. Also, on top of the fact that, like, you know, thinking back, even God, like, it must be the best part of a decade ago. You know, there were there were attempts for a period of time to to sort out kind of like a versioning system for collaborative music making right like if i mm. recall correctly what wasn't was splice originally we used for a little bit like you were living in la and i was living in san francisco and we were collaborating some was that splice it was like doing i like- think i think that was like og splice mm. Mm. it was kind of janky though yeah it was super janky because it wasn't i mean it certainly wasn't like real time it wasn't responsive in that way you weren't all collaborating in the same document it was more just kind of like you had versioning of you know your saves of an ableton file or whatever i think there's something i think blender if i'm correct and i think it's actually still around i'm just doing a quick google now it was blender and not splice but i think i think i think you're right og splice that that's what it offered is like versioning and file sharing for ableton sessions yeah, and it and it was it was kind of like a it was a cool idea before its time in a, in a sense, right? But like, but what you're describing here is something that's just far more tactile, where the feedback is 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 far quicker, and of course leans into you know this aesthetic of of kind of jamming. And and the reason I bring up that term, I mean, I was doing a a talk with with Kay Alado McDowell, who just published a book, another book co-written with GPT three, and we've on previous episodes talked about like in a sense how you know jamming feels a little bit like the super valuable space that fundamentally hasn't really been explored at least in terms of like i mean you can say to some extent that like ableton live introduced this concept of jamming to the the door digital audio workstation station space a little bit right where like there was an emphasis on loops but it was very much kind of you know initially at least a kind of kind of jamming with yourself you're not really mm. jamming with a network. But one thing I think is really cool about this, and I mean, this is a point Holly's made quite a few times, and I think it's pertinent, is like how at least kind of with the introduction of a lot of these machine learning tools, you know, the, the final kind of end product of like the, let's say the final mixed composition or the final mixed kind of visual image ultimately kind of isn't the point right. or doesn't feel like the great opportunity with a lot of these new tools that people are using. Yeah. Whereas in actuality, part of the, the, the fun and actually a lot of the reason a lot of people go and buy, you know, crazy hardware synths and, you know, they put a lot of money and time into their studio is because of the joy of making music, right? Which is, which is of course like a necessary step in mixing down music and then getting really deep into the details or whatever. But is this whole other part that is valuable in and of itself? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I and I think this is kind of a, <clears throat> a mark of a big sea change that's that's happening now. And this is probably where the conversation dovetails a bit more with Web3, etc. But I, I think the you know, we're off the back end of maybe 150 years of industrial media. And you know, 150 years ago when we started to get you know mass mass-produced, distributed music, films, and books. Well, books have been more widely available for longer, but generally it feels to me that, you know, the the era of industrial media is about the last 150 years. And the, the problem that that solved way back, way back when it started was that people didn't have access to cultural experiences. And 
the technology that allowed people to then kind of record cultural experiences, edit them, produce them, and then distribute them on a large scale. That solved that problem and met that need at the time. But actually, what, where we are now, 150 years later, is it's the, we have the opposite problem. There, we're just bombarded with cultural experiences, whether that's through media, social media posts, you know, events, all these, you know, we're oversaturated. And actually, the thing that we that we crave, I think, collectively, is a sense of, you know, finding the signal in the noise, going deep, building meaning, building resonance. And that, you know, con- content, quote unquote content, it's a C word, I, I really don't like that word. But, you know, it, it, it very much reflects the last 150 years. It still has a place, but much more as a, as a sort of memento. So, so I think, you know, we're moving into an age where relationships and context and depth and belonging and identity are going to, you know, they'll be the leading edge. And it's almost rather, you know, when social media came about 20 years ago, it was, you know, the nodes on the network, us as individuals kind of drove that, you know, the content was still at the center of social media. But I, I think that relationship is basically flipping. And it's almost like the the content will be the nodes on the network that kind of broker our relationships a bit more. I don't know. It it feels like a bit sort of rabbit and uh, rabbit and what's the guest out, the guest out switch image. You know, the one where it's, you look at the same picture, it's a rabbit and a frog. You know, do you know, do you know what, do you know what I'm talking I about? I know what you mean. It's a <laughs> yeah. rabbit and a, and a, oh God, what is it? I don't know what uh, you guys are talking about. What do you mean? <laughs> it's, it's this a, image where the same thing looks different depending on what, how you, oh, and a duck. It's it a rabbit and a duck. duck. Rabbit and a duck. Oh, there's yeah. also like a, a beautiful woman and an old man. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I think right now it feels very much, you know, we're, we've come out of a world that looks like a rabbit. And well, the world has actually been a rabbit for quite some time. But now we're suddenly realizing that it's also a duck and the future world will, everybody will just see the world like a duck to just take it to its logical, weird conclusion. I really like this framing. I, you know, my favorite albums are always the ones where I can really feel like it's kind of capturing a moment in time anyways. I'm wondering, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, what, and this is something I was kind of like chatting with a friend recently who just started working on her new album. And I was just writing her, I was like, what is an album today? Like, what does it mean? What is an album as a format? What is its, what's its role in culture these days? So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of your album platform, which was such a great statement that you, you, you wrote that album to be a platform. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, to <laughs> me, it feels, you know, I'm pretty kind of, I generally define myself as a no maxi maxi as I'm not really a maximist on anything, but I think I'm, I'm, if I am maxi on anything, it's sort of process based music. Well, I, I guess referring to what I was saying just before that this idea of co- you know, content being just a connector that, that facilitates yeah, resonance and coming together and relationship building. So I feel, I feel that, you know, what the world wants to do, my, yeah, my hunch is that what the world wants to do now is, is kind of do rather than just consume and be pacified. So yeah, I, I, yeah. What are albums for? I'd say probably, well, certainly for, you know, from the point of view of like 43 year old guy who sort of used to be a touring artist in a a music industry that isn't, doesn't really function the way it did back then. For me, writing an album would definitely be more 
as a you know something about like self-actualization i would just like i would love to have the time and -hmm. i'd love to like dig in deep and be very self-indulgent and hopefully find a few people who might connect with the results of that process yeah, it's just it's one of these questions that like keeps haunting me probably since platform days where I keep kind of asking myself the same question of like what what is the role of this format that keeps, you know, keeps changing every time I put one out. It seems like the music industry keeps mutating further and further. But I like this idea of it of your your framing of facilitating community. I think it's really interesting to see how these online platforms like Endless can also somehow, I don't know if you have any plans for this, but if there's any kind of bleed into IRL, like if any of the people who are collaborating online, if they're actually playing out together, or if you're seeing any kind of online offline stuff happening. Totally. So this is, uh, this is quite a hot topic at amongst Team Endless right now. And actually I was just in a design session this morning when we were specifically looking at like how can we start to solve for jamming together with multiple multiple instrumentalists in the same room? Also, we we were at NFC NYC a few weeks ago and we we ran a, a kind of endless experience, which and at the center of which was an arcade machine that one of our community members, a, a full physical arcade machine. I mean, it's it, it's amazing. <laughs> and that one of our community members that had built around the endless software. And that really, that really stole the show because it you know, we, we've done a lot of trying to figure out, you know, what are the things we say about Endless? Because Endless is many things. I mean, you, you go into the Discord server and into the community, people are just doing wild things. And there's so, there's so much kind of dense, you know, there are so many sub Discord servers and there are people like trying stuff out in VR and there's people building arcade machines and people making hardware MIDI controllers. And it's sometimes hard to know, like, what is the first thing that you say about Endless that really helps people understand what it is? you know, calling it the social loop pedal really helps. But honestly, seeing how people saw that arcade machine, they'd just come into a venue and see this amazing looking arcade machine. And then they'd hear music coming out of it and they'd see someone make music on it. And the entire ethos of like what we're trying to do came over in, in that, that image. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of straying away from the point but i 100% think irl has a, it will have a big place in the future of endless i mean not that you know apart from anything else just like running events you know people coming together and sharing the same space is just a much better environment for knowledge transfer unfortunately also virus transfer <laughs> yeah no i think i think it's interesting cuz it, the other thing too i mean this is something that that i would i was kind of tweeting about this a little bit but it's something that's happened in in a few conversations, we have a conversation coming soon with the writer, David Turner, where, where we talked about this a little bit is just this transition in a sense, what you're talking about with musicking in place, like, you know, with other people, finding other people through the act of making music and that being inherently valuable and kind of like the, the, the subject of value itself reminds me in many ways of kind of folk music, right? And it's, and it's really, it, it is somewhat true, you could say, that, you know, we've gone from this position where, you know, electronic music itself was was once kind of a very expensive habit, right? That only, only kind of like diehards for a period of time would pursue it because it was quite, you know, it was quite a difficult thing to do. There was, you know, a huge, huge kind of overhead in, in terms of like, figuring out how to actually use these tools. And then over, you know, the past, let's say 20 years or whatnot, Beyond the fact that like electronic music has now kind of has this status in many places across genres of being like just part of the woodwork, right? It's like it can no longer be considered 
you know, for, for decades and decades. It's just kind of how music, how music is. In parallel, we've also seen that you know, a lot of people enjoy making electronic music. I mean, I always bring up, for example, this parallel, incredibly engaged universe of like modular synthesis, right? Of like the synthesizer community is in and of itself, it's adjacent to and has entanglements with, let's say, the traditional music industry, right? In the sense that there's definitely people who exist in that space who also choose to become album releasing artists where, you know, exactly the kind of the the, the 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 gesture of mixing this thing down into a record and then having that be what you do takes importance. But there's like many orders of magnitude more people out there who really just get a kick out of like buying modules and jamming with others. And I'm like, this is in a sense, and you know, this is a folk music. This is this is the transition of of electronic music into a kind of into a kind of folk music. And I think that's what you're kind of getting at here. Because what are the hallmarks of folk music, right? It's something that you try and encourage everyone to get to do, right? Everybody, it really, you want to lower the barrier as much as possible for people to be able to participate and express themselves in this. And oftentimes with folk music, beyond some, you know, some of the most stories examples, the, the point is to be making it, right? The point is to make that place or to make that moment together, right? And, and so it seems to me like, like that, that, that's very much the spirit of what you're trying to do. Yeah. <clears throat> and also, I, I think a lot about, you know, music tech YouTube, and it, seem, it seems like such a, you know, the communities that grow up around YouTubers, the music tech YouTubers, and I think like, YouTubers in, in general, but, it, you know, this is very much the, the passion economy narrative. But, but I think it is, it is really, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a folk, it's a folk tradition because you you have this kind of myriad of communities and there's quite a lot of interchange between the two like you know if you watch Andrew Huang or you watch Heinbach or Rachel Collier or you know who, whoever it is like there are a lot of people who will kind of dive in and out of those communities and discord servers and patreons etc but there'll be also people who kind of really find that meaning and and i think there's something about leadership in these communities that that i think really define is demarcates them from just artists and fans because i think this you know this idea that like everything is going to be super decentralized and communities will all be completely headless i mean i well, i i think it's it's definitely something that we need more of but you know what i notice is that what works really well in communities is when there are just sort of naturally emerging leaders but the role they take is quite different from art you know artists kind of well traditionally in this you know the like the excesses of the 80s would just like basically you know rise to the top and have a get out of anything free card but i think with what we're seeing with these communities where there's much more emphasis on participation etc that the the people at the forefront of these particular communities are acting like leaders almost sort of like kind of yeah priests or clergy in some weird way and you know they're kind of expected to uphold certain values and expected to be diplomatic and all, all of this kind of stuff i think that's I well, I I find I I feel that that's some, that's filling a gap that has that we've had for quite a long time because well, particularly since the rise of social media in the last 
two decades, which basically took all the middle ground. You know, in 150, 200 years ago, you'd have yourself, your family, the village, the local town, the county, the, you know, the nation. And it felt like what social media did is just broke, like smashed out all the intermediary stages, intermediary organs of kind of like increasing mag- magnitude and just poured the individual straight into the great wide ocean. So suddenly almost overnight you were as an individual you were you were competing with everybody in the world to go viral and i think that that left us in a position of just a lack of a lack of identity a lack of commonality and a lack of leadership and actually it feels that that's what this kind of like new folk tradition is that's the gap that it's stepping into yeah i would agree with that i like i like the idea of the church of andrew wang i also <laughs> think it's somehow like para academic like i think a lot of a lot of these things would have been explored in an academic environment especially when tools were only available in like cloistered research centers and now that you know most technology can be accessed with like a pretty powerful laptop a lot of that gatekeeping has has subsided. And so we have a real desire for people who don't necessarily want to dedicate their entire lives to, you know, studying music because you almost have to be insane <laughs> to do that at this point, like myself. But yeah, not everybody wants to do that. And so I think it's great that we have all of these kind of para-academic resources that people can really dive deep on a subject matter and don't have to necessarily spend so much money or spend so much time or necessarily stop working or all these kind of other other things. So yeah, I agree. I think it's a kind of weird combination of university and church. Well, I think it's it serves the need for depth. And that's the thing that that I think is has just really been absent in the last 20 years. You know, so many components of our cultural ecosystem that that helped us find depth were were kind of, you know, priced out of the market really. We're seeing that coming back. Yeah, totally. I I always remember years ago this would have been this would have been a decade ago. I had a friend who was working either at YouTube or had a friend who was working at YouTube. I can't remember what the deal was, but, but they told me the story that at the time, you know, that, I mean, it's interesting to think in, in retrospect, that outside of kind of like huge pop videos or whatever, the music video was really kind of receded in terms of, you know, the amount of emphasis that's placed on it. That could just be, you know, generational or maybe I'm not paying attention, but it just doesn't feel like it's kind of as big a deal as it was. But at the time, YouTube, all music content was kind of getting lumped together. And, and allegedly that around about, you know, the, the period of X kind of releasing US dubstep, the tutorials to do the WUB were proving to be just as, if not more successful than music videos that were wubbing. And it was, <laughs> it was kind of this big moment of, of realization, right? Where you're mm. like, okay, wow, actually when everybody comes online and people are sharing, are able to kind of to share tutorials, that the tutorials themselves were proving to be their own medium, right? That the, mm. the desire and the hunger, and it makes total sense. I mean, I remember joking, you know, you go to electronic music festivals now and it's like, I, I talk about like the, the cooking show camera, you know, where it's like, there's, Oftentimes there is this camera kind of God's eye view mm. of like what the DJ or the producer is doing at any particular point in time. And it makes total sense because all of a sudden now you have, you know, tens of thousands of people in some cases at festivals who want to know what's going on, mm. you know, cause it's not, there's not this kind of, there's not this kind of distance. And of course, I mean, we can have, we could have a debate about, you know, whether or not like these, these forums ultimately, I do think that like, I mean, let's just say my, my final approach would be to say that it's positive sum that, you know, it's not necessarily that 
an emphasis on on you know on people learning how to do something really damages the the you know the the idiosyncratic appeal of like the individual artist or whatnot but 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 undeniably it's kind of changed the landscape right that the music in and of itself for better and worse in some cases is now just something that everybody does you know it's kind of like our good friend cullen miller i remember years ago saying this being like yeah like you know ableton's like a video game where you learn cheat codes you know it's just mm. like when we were growing up, everybody knew how to play Street Fighter or whatever, or like mm. Grand Theft Auto. And it's like, it's kind of the same now. Like everyone has a little bit of an idea about how to make a trap beat, you know? And that's, yeah. that's just something, but it's, and it's not bad. It's just a different kind of, yeah, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of, kind of landscape. And, and so, yeah, it definitely makes sense that like characters like Andrew Huang or like someone like a Mr. Bill or whatnot, right? Mm. Who like, really lay open their process and really kind of give people give people as, as some means to 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 get an entry point when and and and, and explore their curiosity about this stuff would end up becoming these kind of figures you know yeah, yeah. that makes total sense yeah totally well it's it, you know it's it's mimetic really it, it's it's kind of meme culture applied to each of pr- media production or mu- or music production and whereas you know the old the idm days of the 90s where it was everybody was really secretive about the tools they they used and there was this whole you know the culture of mystique around having no idea how orteca and Aphex twin got their sounds really drove the engagement and you know weirdly it did ha- it also had a kind of like church style effect where <laughs> it elevated these producers to these godlike status but but now it's like well, it's a, it's a superpower. If you can come up with a sound and a technique that is very transmissible and very easy to communicate, and you can give put tools in people's hands, that allow them to sound sound like that, then that you know that will yeah from a sort of marketing brand building perspective, like that's a really great great way to build a brand as an artist. You know, rather rather than kind of well, I mean, I suppose it's also been blown open it, to an extent. It's been blown open by the that transition that that you just mentioned on youtube from you know the the how to web videos being bigger than the web videos so yeah so we went that that was the moment where we went from a world where you win by being mysterious to a world where you win by creating very amplified mimetic forms that people could actually interact with yeah i completely agree i mean yeah exactly it's gone from like it's gone from an emphasis on, let's say, like distinction or mystery to an emphasis on relatability and replicability, right? And I, I, and I certainly have, you know, in some ways I can have criticisms about what that, what that ultimately lends itself to, right? Because there is something beautiful about, you know, irrespective of all the problems that came with it, there's something beautiful about kind of removing the responsibility from the artist side to think about how relatable they are or mm. how replicable their stuff is, right? Something, something is undeniably lost in a sense, if, if that's fully removed from the equation, but, but it's, but, but, but it's kind of undeniable at this point. I mean, you know, if I, in a sense, if you look at how things have, have shaken out with, with, with social media and with, with platforms like YouTube or whatever, it's kind of undeniable that the, you know, the archetypes that emerge are in a sense archetypes that everybody can kind of participate in, right? Like 
the 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 lone the lone freak doing something that is completely esoteric and difficult to to figure out is disadvantaged in those environments in a way that maybe they were privileged if they were lucky enough to to get the record deal in the nineties or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but you still need that person to stick their neck out there and come up with the <clears throat> the warble or the the trap beat or whatever the format is. Somebody has to to kind of come up with that thing that is new still, and that still does require kind of putting oneself out there. Yeah. I mean it does it does feel that the the march from artists being well like I don't know. I it feels like there's there's a distinction between, you know, the the artist approach and the entrepreneur's approach. Mm-hmm. And I get, you know, I, my trajectory which is I'll probably a lot a lot of people share the same trajectory which you know, you started as an artist and then as you grow older and I don't know, life progresses, you probably generally get a bit more entrepreneurial. I mean, I've always characterized it and particularly like how I, you know, how I was in my twenties, you know, I hadn't really had any corners knocked off me by life. And I I thought that what, what I wanted to do as an artist was just to make the world understand that the way I saw the world was the best way to see the world. So, I mean, you know, this is, uh, that's not really artistry, that's just narcissism. But I think there's, there's something kind of like, well, certainly for me anyway, that was str- quite strongly overlapping. And, you know, the, the entrepreneurial approach is very different. It's just like actually learning the way the rest of the world see the wor- sees the world. And mm-hmm. like your superpower is that. And it just feels that, you know, artistry these days is is much more entrepreneurial by mm-hmm. nature and you know to be fair i think the people that really nail it and you know, like you know holly I, I definitely think of you as among among like probably a, a small number of people who really nail the that the interplay between artistry and entrepreneurship yeah no i mean because you you know you're what you put out there is so unique and uniquely you but then you also seem to have this very almost like agile style sort of build in public learn learn what hits and you know you're running this podcast with matt and you're running the you know channel etc it's just yeah i don't know it's it's certainly a good example of how somebody a, a cultural producer or somebody who wants to kind of lead culture can tie into both artistic ways of being and entrepreneurial ways of being. Well, I'd say I'm kind of stumbling my way through it. Probably like, I mean, I don't know how you felt when you first started your more entrepreneurial (laughs) kind of endeavors. It's definitely some kind of blind stumbling along the way. But I definitely feel like when it comes to the art creation part of it, that part's very much the the first example, the kind of (laughs) the looking inward. And I feel like I could it's almost been a process of trying to figure out how to look outward more, not in a, not in terms of trying to be more commercial, but in terms of trying to be more communicative. Yeah. So, you know, I went from like noise basements where the goal was to, you know, put up a barrier for mm. understanding. Like, I don't want to be understood. I'm just too, too dark, you know, that kind of thing to being like, no, actually music is all about communication. And I want to, I want to build bridges for people to be welcomed into my kind of weird, weird world. But that took a lot of, I don't know, I guess, growing up along the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally feel you as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely feel you on that. Yeah, and it's also, it, it, as you said, it's kind of like another, it's kind of another opportunity. I mean, it's something we've talked about a lot. I mean, at least with the work Holly and I do, it's kind of like understanding that there's a desire for, for context as well as content, right? That like people, people do like, if you meet people where they're at, like people are, you know, 
actors in this world. They're making stuff. They're and and they want to understand not only. I always remember the the. I've probably mentioned it like m- multiple times on the podcast, but I just think it's brilliant. There was there was like an old Louis C.K. sketch where he like took his daughter to play, and his daughter was on the phone the whole time, and he was like getting increasingly disgruntled by her being on the phone when this artwork was happening in front of her and then by the end of it they left the play and she had basically spent her whole time online like reading up about the different characters and the illusions and the metaphors and the you know what i mean that like Mm. in actuality like appreciating a work of art now you have all these tools to be able to kind of build context around it and understand its place in the world and and that is part of the kind of aesthetic experience that you know that's definitely been something that like we prioritize and, you know, entrepreneurism in a sense is, is again, not dissimilar to, to your approach toward this, right? It's like in trying to put together the records or whatever it might be, there are tools and approaches and, you know, let's say contextual or conceptual approaches that come up when you're deep in, you know, deep in the, the, the baking process or whatever, where you're like, huh, like actually, you know, this is a problem that needs fixing, or this is a, you know, this is an approach that's maybe kind of novel here. And so, yeah, it's a, but it, but it's definitely unusual. I mean, we were talking, we were joking a little bit before this call started that us being of a kind of generation where, you know, we grew up, I mean, I barely got to see kind of big record sales time, but kind of grew up in a different kind of music industry. And we've seen this transition, this transition happen that, you know, the one thing that I do think that all of us are are kind of on the same page about is like it's been really clear for a long time that whatever that standard operating procedure is that still lingers in our brain and still in some cases burdens people you know that things are never going back you know mm. so so all of this is kind of a stumbling process of being like okay well how do you continue a practice how do you like make a practice work with these new economic conditions or whatever it might mean without crucially most importantly like without losing that germ of what made it worthwhile in the first place. Do you know what I mean? And as, mm. and as painful as it, as that process <clears throat> is to come to understand that like the recorded album isn't really as valuable anymore as it used to be. It's also liberating in some ways because I've always felt, or we've always felt alienated by this idea that the LP has to capture an entire practice, you know, like when you're building instruments and when you, when you're, you know, coming up with novel theory and you're, you know, there's all these kind of, other parts to the practice that don't fit into like a 50 minute recorded disc, Mm. then it's maybe a good thing that we're kind of questioning what, what the purpose of that very specific artifact is, even though it's a very kind of painful process to go through, I think, because yeah, I also want people who just focus on making albums to be able to support their lives doing that yeah and i think it's there's something about the old you know the 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 old bygone music era framing of what an album is that is very much an an end point you know you Mm -hmm. work and you know i i definitely you know the albums that i did i experienced the same thing it was like there was somehow i wanted to just pour every single thing that i had done and known and experienced and make this statement about okay this (laughs) is it and i think you know in a way like that's well, we literally name it endless after the opposite of that. Mm. Uh, it feels, well, certainly for, for me, what I found was liberating for me as an artist. And then that liberation kind of 
gave birth to this vision of like, well, this, this is what music, what if music could be like this for everybody is that each, each kind of musical statement that you put out there basically has a question mark at at the end and has a like, is this it? And then someone else can (laughs) come back with something else. And, and actually what, what transpires as, you know, after a number of those questions and statements and, you know, units of conversation is that, well, basically more, more context, more, resonance with people around you a clear idea of what happens next and maybe a bit of an alleviation of that burden that it doesn't actually really matter too much what you say next but say something and say the thing you know rather than digging into wikipedia to find the right thing to say next you know look into your heart i mean it sounds very trite but it feels like that that's what feels works these days when the next thing that is said is something from the heart rather than something that's right totally it makes me think of yes and it's a very yes. improv <laughs> it's a very improv principle mm. yeah actually our our discord but our discord bot is called yes amazing but it also feels really prescient with around this machine learning conversation because even media that has been decided is fixed like this is the beginning and this is the end even that media is no longer fixed because you can mm. use that as training data and create something entirely new spawned off of that. So the very concept of something being like fully fixed in concrete forever is kind of being exploded right now anyways. Yeah, we have a we have a big announcement coming coming pretty soon based on that principle. But <laughs> but I think that but it, but it's exactly that you, you took the words out of my mouth. It's like I think that's where, you know, your thesis on this that of course has been forged over a long period of time, I think it's correct. I think that, you know, it's like if you take the, the, you know, you look at what people enjoy doing, how they enjoy participating in media, they enjoy things like sampling, they enjoy things like jamming, and they enjoy feeling like they have their fingers in something, you know what I mean? Like that that the, the, the world is plastic or mutable in, in some kind of way. And I think that, again, it's like all these principles that, that you've been working on for such a long time is such a great it's such a great framework. Sorry to hijack the conversation and talk about ML stuff, but it's such a great framework to to see where this ML stuff is going. Which to me feels it, it feels very very zeitgeisty, even though mm. I know it's been I know it's been a life's work. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I'm totally, and I, I I don't even feel that that's a hijack because I think I think it's really really pertinent, and I think I kind of glibly quote a while back that uh, you know what some something glib about what's going to happen when all cultural products are just trained on previous cultural products so you've just got this loop of training data training on itself kind of mm-hmm. dog fooding but i mean i'm you know you're well ahead of this whole whole game and the thing you know the thinking on a machine learning so i mean i'm excited about the announcement for sure artistic necrophilia is what Mtume <laughs> called it i mean that was actually his term for sampling but that you get the point yeah, yeah rest in peace james and Tume. He, yeah. he dropped that drop that <laughs> drop that legendary legendary quote that Among we can run others, with exactly. he has some of the yeah. best like yeah phrases of all time for music. But I want to kind of switch gears a little bit because, okay, we've been talking a lot about how media is becoming more participatory, which is really interesting and is very much what you all are building at Endless. So I'm wondering, how does this kind of interact with Web3, which is also, of course, you know, focusing on a more kind of interactive ecosystem. I was just thinking while you were speaking before that actually this 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 is a point where the conversation dovetails per- dovetails perfectly into the conversation about Web three. I think maybe I'll I'll kind of top load it with my my hot take that you know Web three. A lot of the discussion about what's happening in Web Web three is about immutable media 
and you know what what media becomes when it becomes immutable and tradable and ownable etc but i i think well certainly that that's kind of at odds with what we're doing at endless because the whole the whole shtick is come participate you know let the past flow by and maybe use the past as something to dog food for the future so i mean we're we're just our nft marketplace although i, I i'm so sick of those three letters and <laughs> i think many people are it is it's just in beta right now so basically, you you can go to a browser, you know, from a jam that you've created in Endless. If it's a collectible jam, you can share a link out to a, a browser listening window window where you can tune into that jam as it happens, see each riff coming in, and you can collect those riffs as as an NFT. But we don't, you know, we don't use the word NFT. We just call it a token. And that's really that's our kind of first. That's our first step. And what we're really looking to build is this kind of a, a re yeah a rebundling flow from ideation right the way through you know so you ideate in a jam by making riffs and then you can collect riffs or if you're a creator of a riff you can compile those riffs together into boards which are kind of like a like clip launching in Ableton so they're kind of ready to ready to clip trigger ready to DJ kind of pre pre prepared clips collections of clips. And then you can record those collections of clips and record those into tracks. And then you can take the tracks and mix those together into mixtapes. And each of those is an ownable media format, which can be represented by NFTs. So, I mean, it's, I think there's been a lot of chat about what remix culture in Web3 looks like. And it feels like this is the this is the great kind of cutting edge of discovery right now we you know we're very much feeling our way through that and you know how royalty payments work and or how splits work and how they're executed and how you can create this sort of like trickle back escrow mechanism that flows right the way through that creative chain but yeah that's that's how we're thinking about using web3 to to i guess to power a a participatory ecosystem and also and, and very specifically so our you know the the business model of endless is that the tools are free and will always be free and we only make money when you make money which i i think well i think is a future i think it well it, it just completely drops all barriers to entry well obviously you need a device to to run to run the apps on but it feels you know that's something that web3 specifically unlocks that just would not have been possible before yeah, I think that's really smart. That's really smart. It's like, and I think that is, you know, where I mean, it, I also agree that the 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 dreaded three three letter word that everyone has an opinion on. You know, there's been a lot of opinions around it, but but the basic principle of saying, well, how do you encourage an environment where where media kind of runs like water? You know, mm. where there is this kind of permissionless kind of environment that encourages people to, you know, to to engage with it, to interact with it, to add to it, to remix it, whatever it might be, and also have some kind of an economy there. I think I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense in that environment, right? Where you're like, you know, you use these tools for what they're good for. And what they're good for, in a sense, is being able to, at the moment where money is made, to be able to in a fair way distribute those funds to where to where they need to go, you know? And and so I think it I think it makes it makes a great deal of sense. Your project seems way more native to to the the kind of core principles of of the of the the three letter word experiment than the many other things it doesn't feel you know because i'll say this i mean 
I think there's been, there have been a lot of quite, I would, let's just say more awkward or more kind of like throwing uh, spaghetti at the wall kind mm. of attempts to make, let's say, older industry compatible with some of these newer principles that are being explored in crypto. And your project is not one of those. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it, it makes sense here where I'm like, oh yeah, how would you value you know, these multi-party collaborations that are happening online that will ultimately, you know, produce media that's there for people to take up, to pick up and, and work with. And I'm like, well, the best tools to do that probably are on this, you know, very permissive open public database where you can do such things, right? It makes, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's quite exciting to think about it in that way. Yeah, totally. And, you know, when, when I first, so, I mean, for, yeah, full disclosure for, for a long time, I mean, I was, I was a big blockchain skeptic until I, until I heard about NFTs and what was happening there. And I mean, pretty, it was pretty overnight. My, my, yeah, it was a real penny dropping moment. I was just like, Ah, right. And it, it also it also felt that it felt so native to what we were building and how we were building it. I mean, ever ever since we started Endless, my you know, my idea or for the strategy of how we would build it out is first build a really great creator tool that is collaborative and real time and allows people to jam together and then build a social network around that and then build a marketplace around the social network so you know the the sort of the the nft boom of 2021 kind of came at exactly the right time because that was exactly when we were just beginning to kind of move away from like okay so we've got we've got like a fairly mature creator tool i mean you know there there are rcn this community there's plenty more stuff we could build for it but you know it's a pretty highly functional tool that allows you to do a lot of different things and gives people the power to collaborate. And so we were moving on to building out the social network and it just felt that, yeah, it, it all happened. At, it gained, Web3 gained prominence at exactly the right time. So I've, I've almost like, I felt it quite viscerally, quite kind of, a, quite like a deep emotional level that like, oh my, yeah, this is it. So really it took about, I'd say it took about 12 months to kind of talk everyone around, talk the team around, talk to the community, to talk to our investors and really make the case for, you know, why this is the future. Because, uh, you know, there was, a, when, it, when it hit its peak, there was a, a lot of very strong kind of, yeah, out, well, we all know. I, I must have missed that. I must have missed that. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. But I think, I think that's, but I think that's, that's really, it's really true in that in many cases, and it's worth maybe talking about this and expanding on it a little bit because in many cases, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the difficulties with this kind of odd Wild West new, new proposal for an internet, right, is like, you also can't tell like what people encounter first, right? And so that mm. word, the dreaded word means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But the one thing that I'm really enthused by in a sense is like, of course, none of this stuff's going away, right? People are still building stuff. I'd, I'd be really curious. I have another question on this particularly, but, but one thing that I think is really striking is that for those whom the penny does drop, oftentimes it drops related to a deep problem that has been gnawing at you for a really long time, mm. where all of a sudden there's this new alien toolkit that's emerged that, by the way, is constantly being updated by a whole bunch of people who you may or may not know, right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, actually that's kind of useful. And in a weird way, the, you know, the kind of NFT moment of 2021 
I don't think he's characterized by that, right? There's all these kind of conversations of being like, well, what's the actual utility, right? And mm. and what's striking, and at least a lot of the people we've tried to have on the podcast, I mean, I bring to mind, for example, you know, The Fringe, who are building this kind of sci-fi franchise that we had on recently, great project, who I think, I think got into Web3 because of this podcast, which is great. <laughs> but they're coming from this perspective of, you know, building a, a pretty sizable world around a very successful science fiction debut that they made. And they were like, oh, our problem was ultimately that, you know, we have all the lore of this world is such a big part of the project that we did. And in traditional structures, we weren't able to properly explore that. I mean, we're still, they don't really own it, right? Because of the weird contracts that they have to do. And so some of the the utilities of these new tools, right? These new tokens, they were like, ah, that we can actually use that. I feel like Holly and I have a similar have a similar feeling specifically related to the machine learning stuff where it's like for years it's been like well you know we've got all these concerns about where these tools are going and actually you know some of these structures are pretty damn useful like i don't know quite how it's going to pan out but i can say that having this new toolkit available gives so much more flexibility than whatever other toolkit we were supposed to you know invent out of nowhere with with money that isn't there you know what i mean like mm. all of a sudden so so I, th- I think it's worth i think it's worth talking about that i mean i mean first off like you know how i think going forward you know the 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 use the utility of the non-fungible token will ultimately be defined by problems that it solves mm. rather than by you know the the beeple story or whatever whatever it is that people first encountered it with and 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 yeah and and it's but you but you can never tell when you talk to people it became such a cultural kind of third rail or whatever that you can never tell whether you're talking about the same thing with anybody well i think that you know all the 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 big story the big splashy stories were very much kind of vision setting rather than product building. And it feels like th- this is the, you know, we're, it's like bear markets, build season. And, you know, now we're deep down in our burrows building building products. But it sort of, it feels like, I, I, I kind of think about this a bit like the the way we interact with trauma. This is This is slightly out there, but bear with me. So, you know, when the stories that keep you in in trauma are stories they're narratives about things they're narratives about you know, about the world you know you're basically making stuff up about the world and what actually releases you from trauma is kind of just really going into the feelings feeling the feelings and and then you get this kind of like emotional release that has no extor- has no story behind it and it has real kind of feeling and it sort of it feels to me that we're now in that phase with crypto and then nfts and web3 that there was so much storytelling last year about like this bright future of the metaverse and this is going to change everything and everything is you know it was very it was very story led and i think we're kind of moving into this zone where like we actually stop telling stories and start feeling stuff and that's very much the domain of you know the product builders user experience and you know really just like actually understanding okay well if we actually build something around this and we actually put a good good interface around it we make sure that it's performant then then you get that kind of like more visceral less storytelling side to it i don't know maybe that's a bit out there yeah no no i I think that makes sense and i think yeah you need you need some kind of attempt at parity between you know the big vision stories and utility or you know just integration in people's lives and like you know but this is this has happened before right i mean like the first kind of 
I mean, there's been multiple kind of bull markets or whatever, but like the last big one prior to the NFT moment was the ICO, right? Mm. And of course, like, you know, if people thought that some of the hijinks happening around the past couple of years are are kind of difficult to stomach, I mean, like ICO period was like mm. really rough, you know what I mean? Like, but what's funny about it is that when you look back in retrospect, so many of the actual utilities that were being explored around ICOs, namely like the ability to be able to fundraise instantaneously from a large group of people, you know what I mean? Like that's just normal now, you mm. know? And and so over time, irrespective of there being a lot of blood and tears, over time, you know, that kind of there's a certain path that 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 endured. And I agree. I think it's kind of the same with NFTs. It's like, okay, we've we've sped run a multi like so many different horrible ideas. Some of the better ideas maybe were, you know, were kind of outshouted by, you know, cash grabs, but but it'll all come out in the wash. And fundamentally, you know, the 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 toolkit itself is here, you know, and we'll have probably in a couple of years, there'll be another couple of years, couple of months, whatever it might be. We'll have another big moment where people get really excited about zero knowledge proofs or, you know, whatever the next crazy thing is that some people will use to kind of sell these, these massive stories. But it's really important to disentangle that kind of hype from, you know, from what people are actually going to use. And, you know, and, and I think that when, what you're discussing here is something quite fundamental, right? It's like you're talking about the the base desire for people to make music with others, share that, and they're not being, you know, they're not being enough infrastructure available to properly explore that and explore value and ex- ex- explore ownership in that. If you tell me over a 10 to 20 year time horizon, is that going to happen? Yes, it's going to happen. What tools are going to, you know, facilitate that being fair and, you know, economies being created around that? Probably these tools, you know, or, <laughs> or some variation of these tools, right? So it's like, in the short term, it's kind of, it can be very, you know, it can be, there can be lots of fire and brimstone and, 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 and you know, emotional fallout around this stuff. But longer term, I'm like, well, you know, this seems to have a better shot than the, than the other approach, you know, which, mm. you know, and again, the, you know, talking about metaverses or whatever it might mean, like, that again is the fundamental point for me is I'm just like, well, you know, I, there's going to be a future where all this stuff happens. And would I prefer that to be something that's open and public and where we're all kind of working together on, on establishing a standard or Facebook? I think mm. I prefer, I prefer this one. You know, I just, I just do. I think, and I think it's over time, it, it's, it's actually probably more likely. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm rambling. But, a but bit. you said that you had a kind of like light bulb on moment and it happened really fast for you, but what was exactly the light bulb? Like what may or what what flipped the switch for you? I was always clear that Endless would only really be successful when the the people who did great stuff on Endless reaped the rewards, you know, managed to realize the value of what of what they did on on Endless. And so I think I you know, I've I've got kind of I've got financial models that that I put together from, you know, two or three years ago that that had all these like fairly ornate ideas that like, yeah, maybe you, you could sort of have a Patreon style subscription to certain jammers or you could st- subscribe to certain jams. And it just felt it felt so convoluted, mm-hmm. but the only way that was available to actually deliver that that vision really. And so as soon as I heard what NFTs were doing, it was just like that that's it. It's it's clearly like it was so clear to me that that because of you know the value is in what hap yeah. The value is in what happens in that magic moment between people. So there's something about well just a I guess a kind of ownership, you know, this kind of receipt <laughs> that 
of, of ownership that shows that somebody owns that thing. But the, the, the way the whole pricing mechanisms work mean that, you know, the, the old world of the media industry is, is all about finding that really highly transmissible one thing that a million people will pay 10 bucks to go and see, to download, to have. So that, you know, what you really, if you, if you kind of imagine the sort of graph of intent of fans and like right at the top of the right, you've got these super fans who would actually pay like thousands or tens of thousands. And, uh, but, you know, so the name of the game in the industrial media world is to basically optimize for that point where the, the curve of intent like just tips over your price point. So mm-hmm. you're kind of optimizing for really low intent. And, you know, what my experience, my experience of both jamming on Endless and now, you know, my main involvement with en- Endless as a participant in the ecosystem now is more, you know, what, just watching what people are doing, listening to what people are doing, collecting their riffs. As and that, you know, being there when the thing happens, even, even if you weren't actually participating in creating the thing, but, you know, just being there makes it mean more to you, makes it worth more to you. And I think that the fact that that the value, not only can media be kind of like owned and, and all, everything that means to it, whether it's whether that means like used or flexed or associated with, it, there's, it's also so asymmetrical the way people value it. And basically, yeah, the yeah, NFTs capture, allow that, provide a mechanism to reflect that. Yeah, that's a really nice way of, of, putting, of putting it. But something that I've been thinking about for a long time as well. This kind of idea that all, you know, all musicians were kind of told what their what their price point should be. That was kind of this top down decision that just simply doesn't make sense for all all the music in the world to all have the same price because it just doesn't function the same way for every community. So really to give creators, to use the C word, the ability (laughs) to create their own kind of economy and their own kind of price point, because I totally agree. I think that different engagement and different intent does have a very different price point and that's completely okay it's even good it helps for there to for difference to kind of thrive within the the media economy yeah yeah totally and 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 it it makes me think too which is funny because you know and this will this will over time i think be kind of ameliorated but the you know in some ways it shares so many that observation shares so much with an argument that I had a hard time until the penny dropped with me getting on board with, which was the old kind of piracy argument, right? That, that in actuality, you know, what .cd users or people who were really, really insistent that music should flow freely and be shared, you know, this observation that allegedly they were spending more money to support musicians than the casual observer, right? Through live tickets and, mm. you know, collectibles and merch and stuff like this. And I'm like, mm. it's, it, it took me a long time to kind of get on board with that because initially I was quite defense, defensive of, let's say, an artist's right to to gatekeep their own work, right? Like to take, like, let's say, a, a Sprinkles approach, right? Like who famously, famously doesn't want their work shared on YouTube because and that's their prerogative, right? But what's kind of cool, I think, about about this approach and definitely the penny drop for me is I'm like, actually, in some ways, beyond the hype that I think turned a lot of people off, the core, the core principle of or proposal of some of these NFTs actually really comports with that principle, right? Where you're like, 
it's available to everybody to enjoy. And there are going to be moments and motivations and relationships and whatever it might mean that, that kind of compel some people to, you know, to value them and, and, and why arbitrarily cap that value through, let's say a universal streaming rate or something like this. Like, why would, why would you do that when we all know, you know, like in the heat of the moment, I, I rarely regret, you know, in the heat of the moment, dropping, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever on that thing that kind of crowns that moment, you know, and mm. whether it's a meal or a drink or what, like whatever it is, there, there are moments where you joyously kind of support something and, you know, and, and uh, yeah, anyway, so I, I think it, 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 it's kind of funny and it'll be funny over time to see how, how the, you know, the older logic of, of, uh, of, let's say the what CD era ultimately has to be reconciled with with the utility of these tools because in my mind they're really really similar it's also it's kind of it's weirdly kind of anti-consumerist as well i mean i i don't know i've got i sometimes get a bee in my bonnet about this sort of consumerism uh, a consumer mentality that you know i i paid my 9.99 now and nine so i deserve this that and the other and it's it's this sort of weird like it's it's quite gaslighty because you know you're t- as a as a consumer of a flat rate whatever you're told you know we value you as a customer and you will get this that and the other but but actually the 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 statute you know like the, the 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 legal requirements of that company is to maximize value for shareholders so in a way like consumerism is, is such a psyop because they want you know it, it works you know given that structure it works for consumers to feel like they are the center of everything and they will deserve everything and they will get it because that makes them stump up the cash to pay for the thing but it doesn't you know because you because you have this very yeah optimizing for that point where the curve of intent like just tips over the price point you will get people you know that most of the people you engage with will just be around that point and ultimately those people don't really care they just want their stuff and i think what's really interesting about web3 is it really optimizes for people who will really lean in and and actually i mean aside from all you know the 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 whole hyper-financialization narrative, which is also real and also problematic. And I think the, you know, the the big vulnerability of this whole thing is that it just becomes more stock trading. So people who have money are good with money, are good at turning some money into more money, will come to these places and use them to turn some money into more money. I mean, that is the real risk. But it does. I mean, you know, like you were saying, you're celebrating that that moment where you where you know you pay a hundred quid for a great meal because you're in great company in a great city and it's worth it. But then you'll wake up the next day and you'll be asked to pay hundred quid for something else, and you'd just be like, "What? Why? Why? Why?" So it is. You know, our relationship with money is also very asymmetrical, and our the way you know our intentions are and motivations are asymmetrical. And I think, I, yeah, I don't know. Some somehow depegging the way we price things from the lowest common denominator is definitely a good thing but also there be dragons yeah totally and <laughs> and it's funny i mean even to think like of classic examples of like how music might be valued right that there's a reason that you know a lot of musicians uh, optimize for celebrations right mm. i mean like if you think about how like a lot of musicians probably most musicians globally make ends meet is they go play weddings or mm. festivities, right? Like, I mean, the 
the entertainment industry outside of what you were describing as like, you know, the very particular industrial fixed media industry, generally speaking, people optimize for environments where people are feeling good. You alcohol. Know? And like, it's the alcohol industry. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, and so, and so, you know, trying to unpack the motivations for one person to to want to support something is really complicated and and it's important to not arbitrarily kind of kind of kind of cap that or maybe even be cynical about it because i mean i just don't know of a i don't really know of too many scenarios where this is kind of this odd historical accident where you know for a period of time the way in which you supported arts that happened to work really well on the artist side is you paid 10 bucks for a wax disc right mm. and like or 20 bucks for a wax, wax disc, disc or whatever and it's like okay we're past that now. There's going to be all number of different ways that artists are supported, but these, you know, these techniques and tools offer people from many, very different, who have very, very different motivations involved, a means to support. And some of them, it's going to be exactly as you say, pure speculation. And I mean, you can't, you can't move away from that. I've actually come full circle on this being like my peak pragmatist, where I'm just like, <laughs> you can't decouple the two, you know. It's like, it, 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 this is just, this is just the odd moment that we found ourselves in where, mm. you know, really, really well-intentioned people who want to support artists and develop direct relationships with those artists are also in the same group. And in some cases are the same people as people who, you know, really enjoy gambling. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I mean, you know, and what, like, but I mean, you know, but, but there you go. Like, I mean, what is, what are professional sports without that dynamic too? Or, you know, like most things we enjoy have those dynamics and it's, I yeah. would love to be able to cleanly, you know, cleanly cut them off, but you know, it just is as it is. You know? Yeah, totally. And like I had, I, obviously I had like a ton of really interesting conversations when I was at NFT NYC, but one of the real standouts was with a board ape holder who came to one of our events and, you know, was wearing his board ape hood. And I got really, yeah, I was showing him around endless and, you know, what we're doing. And, you know, he's clearly like an older guy, very experienced, has been around, you know, investing communities and art communities and is very circumspect about everything. But he said that like, yeah, you know, the, the the degens and the gamblings and the, the gamblers and the the people who will you know be coalescing around these sort of pump and dump schemes it you know it feels like we you know we don't want to optimize for that behavior particularly when we're building cultural products and cultural communities but functionally well as you say i mean it it serves a really good purpose and i mean i think I mean, obviously, I have ethical misgivings about that. Probably more the the effect of people who really are serial gamblers and you know, like problem gamblers. You know, how do, how do we look out for problem gamblers? And particularly, like, how do we look out for you know people who are maybe a little green around the gills in crypto coming in, at, you know, as retail investors and ending yeah. up being someone else's exit liquidity. But it still it does it does serve a function there, and there, you know there are some people who who are happy with that heightened level of adrenaline, I guess, of you know just wanting to be there, taking positions in that, liquidating positions in that. But it's I don't know, it's it's so complicated. Well, there's there's also there's also this kind of like the entanglement of all of our gestures somehow being commodified. I think is what mm. makes people pause, and and but that's not something that started with Web three. That's something that started with Web two. And Web3 made very visible, like, you know, the like, like function, the, the Instagram, definitely the algorithm, like chooses faces over other things to prioritize in the feed, things like this, like 
all of that kind of commodification of our daily lives and our gestures and our personal relationships and all of that kind of stuff that feels really icky, but that kind of already happened. And so now this web three thing is like trying to expose it and then figure out, I'm hoping that through some of the exposing of it, we can figure out what parts of it we can disentangle from that. And enfranchise. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's a word. I feel, I feel like you know, what, what crypto came from was a response to the financial crisis. Well, at least this seems to be received opinion is it came about in 2008 response to the financial crisis and, you know, centralized control over financial institutions. So, you know, decentralization, you know, that centralization was the wrong that needs to be righted. So decentralization became the manifesto for crypto. We don't think that that is actually the sort of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of rights to be wrongs to be righted. I don't really, I don't actually think that's at the top of the tree, like particularly for culture, because I think the wrong that needs to be righted in culture is enfranchising, enfranchisement. You know, we essentially the web to platforms learned how to commodify our daily um, our daily lives uh, but they just you know they reaped all the value and that's not you know I, I personally I personally don't like hold any individual like solely responsible for like this is why the world is all right I mean it was just a, a sort of an emergent phenomenon that came from the the coming together of the, you know, the limited company structure, the LLC structure, which was basically an industrial revolution construct and hyper-connectivity internet technology. So, but that, you know, the, the emergent effect of that was for these huge global companies to commodify our daily lives and then sell what they, what value they could realize from that onto, on, well, sell the attention onto advertisers and then basically distribute the value to the shareholders. So I think it's, uh, for me, enfranchisement is, re-enfranchisement is actually more important than decentralization. Decentralization is a component of writing that wrong, I think. Yeah, I, I think I think I agree. I mean, in, in a sense, the, yeah, because as you said, like <clears throat> with Web2, and I remember this, it's like the opportunity was to establish the most defensible moat, right? Like that was the push was, you know, start this company to basically gain network effects and capture this entire audience and then figure out ways to extractively, extractively kind of make money from all of them. And it's, you know, the, the, the openness part that happens to be a feature of some of the, of some of the, uh, of some decentralized networks is, is kind of, is kind of the, the, the point that the, in actuality, even though of course everyone Everyone looking to raise money to do something in Web three ultimately is is looking to capture some value. There's a different value set there, and and just to, the one thing I would say before around this is like you know it really depends. Language is also this. I heard a a term recently that I'm forgetting now, but it basically the term covers this idea that you know different concepts can mean very different things depending on what word you use. You know, and mm. you have in a sense. To go back to the NFT conversation or, or this idea of not arbitrarily capping things, you know, the difference between like a, a collector, a patron, or a, a VIP is functionally in many cases kind of meaningless. Like in terms of like, you know, what the actual interactions are, mm. the, the only difference really is that, you know, let's say in a music context, we don't know, and artists certainly don't get to participate in the value share of you know, the person who is having a particularly mad weekend and is spending five grand at the music festival buying drinks for everyone, mm. right? Like there's a whole tier in the, in the music industry that we probably don't participate in that much that is there to 
capture the festivities of that, right? Where it's like you can, in many cases, in many clubs, you can go there and and pay for this whole other kind of experience. But that's something that the house, you know, that the house mm. benefits from, right? And alcohol companies oftentimes or whatever it might mean. And so the ability, in a sense, to say, no, actually, we're going to like, you know, we can't tell the motivations for why somebody might want to come in and participate and enjoy the arts or enjoy art experiences or whatnot. But what we can do is we can figure out really clear lines of remuneration and attribution so that any of the value that is being created at that moment will go back to the artists, Mm. right? Seems to me to be a very defensible, a defensible position, but I'm kind of, but, and, but I'm kind of with you, with you on this. It's like decentralization in and of itself is, you know, it's no panacea, right? You can imagine many, many kind of, uh, many kind of lost scenarios or, or scenarios mm-hmm. in which an artist or, or a different cultural scene is completely lost amidst this lack of, you know, some central principle or some kind of central guiding guiding rail you know decentralization can create just as many problems as centralization does but just different ones in in some cases but the bigger point here from an artist perspective is one of you know giving artists some agency giving them maximum opportunities to pursue an economy around what they do and not arbitrarily capping that or taking as as you know gospel decisions of people in in stockholm or or mountain Mm. view right That, that that was the big problem. And actually, you know, we'll see a bunch of different scenarios. We'll, we'll see a bunch of different scenarios manifest from this new tool suite that will probably be a comp, you know, some weird combination of both. Yeah. No, but you're right. And I mean, and, and to that point too, it, you know, that that's also something I, I think that the, the financialization issue is, is something to be, to be taken seriously. I, I'm just, but, but I'm def- I'm personally in a position where I'm like all my, all my gag reflexes has been, I've been trained out of my gag reflex and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm in like pure analytical mode with it now where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. like this is going to exist. Like, you know, what's a, what's a positive or a negative trade-off to this, you know, cause, cause it's, it's just there and it, and yeah. it will be there with whatever, you know, with whatever a new proposal emerges to. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, taking this kind of systems view, functional view of like, you know, what are, what are the components and you put the component, you, you can't sort of design, we don't really get to design the systems that, that we build in a weird way. That sounds like a really weird thing to say. But what I mean by saying that we don't really get to design the systems is that they, they kind of emerge. And as soon as, I mean, you, you can, well, you know, Bitcoin is a really good example of that, that it was kind of incubated in this perfect isolation and the maths work, worked out, the tech was worked out. And now, you know, it's still running in the same way it was running when it was, you know, it first started like almost 15 years ago. But I, yeah, I mean, what, what happens when the rubber hits the road with stuff is just so, you know, it's so complex. It's so beyond our control that the best thing we can do is, you know, take take moments to try and understand more deeply the complexity of what's going around going yeah the complexity of what's going on around us and then you know develop our theses and don't really don't sort of dally too much to try and build something and ship something and see what impact that has on the great complexity around us and that's kind of all we can do and i think the the thing we mustn't do is well i was going to say we we can't take moral positions i think 
I think we can. I think we have, I think in a way we have to follow our heart about where we see, you know, our, like we all have, we all have an ethical sense. And as individuals, we all come to slightly different ethical conclusions. But ultimately, like I do, I'm quite positive about human nature overall. And, and I think, you know, we can be led down bad paths. We can be led down good paths. But I think the majority of people do have quite a good ethical sense somewhere that can often get buried by the circumstances we find ourselves in and, you know, the hands that we were dealt, etc. But I think we should have a clear idea of what is what is worth striving for and what is worth striving to what's worth striving to maximize what's worth striving to minimize but but not kind of like discount whole swathes of how things actually are because you'll just you know you'll you'll to the extent you're building things you're building things for a fantasy world and that you know it's just a real world this complex so i think understanding you know rather than going like oh i don't like i don't like the whole gambling side of crypto you probably do better to understand like well actually what what is happening there what are, who who are the main players what are the forces like i'm sure there's a ton of shady stuff that's going on or or, or kind of like you know gray area things that are going on and just re- like just really trying to understand like that's that's what we need to do just understand i agree and i also think it's worth questioning whether or not it's a, a moral position to advocate for the status quo and also for an ideal that has zero public support, which is often what I find with a lot of pushback around Web3 stuff. Either people are kind of like digging their hills in and advocating for the status quo, which I mean, I don't think anybody would look at the music industry and think like, that's a really functioning, super equitable (laughs) industry you've got going on there. (laughs) And also, you know, some of the alternatives that I've seen are often ideas that are, you know, kind of really good natured, but just have no public support, don't really kind of like plug into any kind of reality that I see at all feasible. So I think that there does have to be some sort of pragmatism and, and looking into some of the, I don't know, looking into the kind of like libidinal belly of the beast and understanding Mm. what makes people tick, I think can be helpful, even when you're trying to come up with an idea that's not necessarily feeding kind of those worst impulses. Totally. It's, you know, the, the age old adage of ideas are cheap, execution is expensive. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just all, it's always the way that like, you know, and I have in the, you know, as kind of like I waded right into the middle of the, the, the sort of anti-T noise and when it was at its peak, it, it wasn't all that pleasant, but I kind of felt that it, I kind of felt it had to be done and, and not, not done from a really maximalist point of view. But so, you know, and I saw, I saw a lot of, a lot of ideas about like, well, maybe it should be this, maybe it should be like that. And, you know, what, what I want to say most of the time is just like, cool, go and build it. Yes. And then, and then, and then most people just sort of do, you know, it's like that Homer Simpson disappearing to the hedge meme. (laughs) Well, totally. And that's the thing. I mean, there's definitely a room in in the arts for kind of utopian thinking, which is funny because I did like my personal interest in crypto was not really from that vantage point. I think it's easily caricatured as being utopian, but it's actually far more pragmatic. I mean, in the sense that like, you know, because it's more coming from this, from this experience of being like, well, you know, there are plenty of people who, there are plenty of good ideas out there, but I don't know. And I think this is an interesting, not to be trolley, but I think it is an interesting kind of valence of like moral inquiry. Like what, like who does it help, you know, to perpetuate mythologies about how, you know, let's say the music economy works or something like that. In actuality, it feels far more virtuous to me to just accept that things are incredibly messy, you know, Mm. and, and, 
I always recall I've, I've brought this I've used this story a few times and I hope to one day invite him back on, on the podcast but there's a musicologist at the University of Bristol called Lee Marshall who years ago this would have been like 2015 something like that I was invited into some think tank and they were thinking about like GDPR and the lawyers from Google there or whatever and we were talking about you know how music should actually work and and and, and I kind of got on my soapbox a little bit with some of my more utopian ideas about it and he kind of slapped me down, not in a, not in a in a bad way, but he was like, "Ah, oh, oh, you're one of he, he's got probably twenty years on me." He was like, "Oh, you're one of those people, you know, you're a believer." And like he's like, "Ah, you know, Ouch. No, no, but, no, but he he was he was great, but but he was like, you know, the, the the challenges when you're talking about like the value of music. He's like, he'd done all this research into, uh, you know, how few times vinyl that was purchased was ever played, mm. you know, you know. And how ultimately the conclusion he came to around the value of music is you can't ignore the Veblen components that really it turns out, at least from his perspective, that a great deal of the value of music was its signaling potential. A lot of people mm. like to be seen with records. They like to be seen at the record store. They like to be, you know, how many books are actually read. And mm. he's like, and you, and the problem with you, he's like, it's a good problem to have, but he's like, the problem with you is you've committed your life to this. So to you, music is this sacred good that you know that everybody should treat with with the sanctity and so on and so forth and he's like of course when you actually get down into it it's really complicated and, and it, it and at that point you know for me it was a very humbling experience because i was like you know you're right and actually irrespective of where where i might you know take some umbrage with like the spotify's of the world they're coming at it from that angle you know hmm. like they have all the data in the world about what people do with their listening habits. You know what I mean? Mm. They're not stupid, right? They're not, they're not misled. They know quite a bit about this. And so actually the really difficult part is thinking, hmm, well, if that's not working and they're really bright and this is their proposal, how do you, you know, scavenge together a counter proposal that might actually have a shot? And, you know, and, and, and even the most kind of dogged crypto critic, I would argue, would have to humble themselves a little bit and be like, well, in, you know, a decade plus of people railing about the platform economy, you know, they've broken some ground here. You know what I mean? Mm. It, wasn't, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the easily kind of, it wasn't the takedowns of, of the sharing economy that, that ended up happening. That turned out to not work. Right. It wasn't, you know, some state based activity that is, let's be real, like probably not coming, even though I might personally, you know, support it if I could mm. vote for it. Mm. It was this weird mutant thing that, mm. that, you know, that you kind of like have to have to have to approach as is. You can't, you know, you can't. Yeah. Anyway. So, I mean, it could also be just a product of age that I end up that I end up coming to those conclusions. But I think it's I think it's true. You know, it's just we have the options available to us now that we do. And and, and particularly on a longer term, you know, where I, th I hear you, you know, for a long time, you've been advocating for these principles of sharing music, have music be this mutable this mutable experience, it's like, okay, well, how do you build an economy for that? Lo and behold, it doesn't surprise me at all that, that, you, that you're intellectually stimulated by, by you know, some of these tools that, that have just emerged, and, and thank God they have. Yeah, no, it's, it, was, yeah, it was really weird, like, how, how right. But it, I mean, this is, this in its own right, I think a lot of people have these kind of Web3 experiences. I remember at the peak, you know, sort of mid last year, and I'd, I'd wake up each morning, I'd wake up and check Twitter and not the moment I woke up, but maybe 30 seconds after. And, you know, somebody be like, I went down the rabbit hole last night and now I see it. And it does seem to, it does seem to particularly have 
this impact. And I'm I'm curious. I still don't know really why, to what extent. Yeah, I don't know. What what is it about Web3 that is A, so divisive and B, kind of stimulates such a kind of like visceral kind of road to Damascus kind of experience in people? Well, what's, I mean, what's, what's your t- Oh, God, I just think it's like this perfect cocktail of like, for one, the technology is complicated to understand. So you have to actually deal with the topic to understand what's cool about it. And I think most people just want like a soundbite, like, is it good? Is it bad? I don't want to have to re- read further. So I think a lot of it's just down to its own complexity. And then it just became part of a culture war. Almost everything in our society these days, I feel like any kind of big topic is just gets absorbed into the culture war. And then you have to choose a tribe and mm. <laughs> claim which one you belong to. It's very unfortunate. Mm. I don't know. What do you think, yeah. Matt? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think I think it is a perfect storm where like it. It's unusual for me in a sense, because obviously I've been shouting about some of these things for a very long time, right? Like pre-crypto. And in that time, it is really unusual how it was the 2021 NFT moment where this became a culture war. I was going to, you know, music festivals, whatever, chatting to people about these esoteric ideas that at the time no one knew knew about, and it was never an issue. And this mm-hmm. you know, you'd be consistent that whole time. And then I think really, and this is the, the most generous reading of it i think is that it just the the nft moment we discussed this a little bit in our in our chat with carl mcdonald who's very critical of of this whole thing the nft moment happened at a pretty brutal time in the middle of the pandemic where true you know everyone is feeling financially professionally insecure interpersonally insecure and all of a sudden you have this scenario where there's some people met oftentimes people who you know you didn't really understand what they were talking about and you're seeing them, you know, trading and and in some cases receiving ridiculous sums of money for something that on the face of it doesn't look that interesting. Oftentimes, let's be real, isn't that interesting, right? <laughs> you know, that coupled with the professional financial insecurity, I can completely understand why at that moment, you know, you have the most vis- the most vocal advocates oftentimes are characters who, let's say, you know, you, most people aren't going to be that kind of seduced by, right? Like the, 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 the ones who are kind of dominating the conversation on the booster, the boostery kind of maximalist side. And then you have other narratives coming along being like, yeah, by the way, this is all, a, this is all dog shit. They're talking out their ass. It's all bullshit. It, none of it works for X and Y reason, you know? And, and so actually the people who are, you know, the people who are, who are doing well by this or exploring this or excited by this are all bad actors who are motivated by, hmm. by greed. And I can see how that narrative would would take hold largely because of the moment. And I think, you know, over time, and, and that's a really difficult, it, it, was, it was interpersonally very difficult for me to all of a sudden find myself in, in the midst of a culture war that I did not sign up for. Yeah, but, but I think that's it. It's like, it's a combination of like, kind of this, this new esoteric thing that a lot of people don't understand or don't, you know, don't, haven't necessarily been given the most gracious on-ramp to, and a really, you know, a, a generationally defining insecure moment. I mean, we're, you know, we haven't even talked about this because we're talking about fun stuff and the stuff that we care about, but like, you know, the past couple of years have been devastating. And mm. that's me saying as someone who's like, I'm like a, a pig in shit for want of a better term, right? Like a lot of the things that I'm interested in are, have been exploding in the past couple of years. But the idea over the past couple of years of like, all of a sudden, all the shows going, all of a sudden, mm. you know, things that we 
that that are so crucial to our identity of, of you know being part of some scenes dissolving into infighting and and you know and mudslinging there not being any guarantee that the kind of cultures that we grew up with are even valued anymore mm. right that that's a really crestfalling and awful thing and i'm saying this as somebody who is kind of engaged with the moment by by dint of of the kind of work that we do you know i i can only imagine how it must feel for someone who who basically shares all of the same proclivities and 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 culture that we do but is not in any way interested in crypto or machine learning mm. like how must they feel because i feel pretty bad about it not gonna lie you know mm. beyond their optimism and you know doing the podcast and finding other people who care about those nerdy interests that we have the whole thing's been devastating for me so i completely understand why mm. <laughs> does that make sense yeah yeah no d- totally and i think you know a, a lot of the you know a lot of the sort of difficult conversations that i got into well particularly on twitter i mean you know it all really comes down to the the way that social networks are most successful when they drive a wedge between us because they you know the most profitable emotion is outrage and anger because it keeps you coming back to you know retrieve some more notifications and some more adverts but yeah i mean i i definitely i felt very strongly that a lot of the time i was talking to people's i guess kind of uh, the the lump sum the aggregate of people's dissatisfaction and difficulties and yeah it was a really difficult time it's it's so hard in the i well i i find it really hard in those situations i guess that you know the the reptilian instinct well is is to then go and take your opposite position and dig your dig your heels in i mean just you know early today i went for a quick run around the park and i was going to i was running next to the canal and there were a couple of coots in the canal fighting and it's like it's so hilarious watching coots fight because they're really just going for it but just oh god like that's what (laughs) Wait, That's what's what, a what's a coot? It's it's so it's it, it's a small bird. It's kind of like got like black plumage and then this little kind of white beak. And they they're quite they're gnarly. They're like they're they're very they're always fighting and they're you know they're always kind of like giving the other ducks a, a go. But it was just you know seeing seeing that kind of reptilian instinct and then realizing that you know when I'm online you know wading into this culture war and you know other people's outrage just provokes my outrage and it's very difficult it's you know it's very difficult because you want to land you want to land that final like ha sucker blow but you know no one ever will mm. so yeah one I could know. say it's endless well, I, <laughs> yeah. I, also, I also think people are like kind of like th- really wanting to thrash out at the kind of like bigger players but they only have access to the people who are adjacent to them it's much mm. easier to kind of like rip apart someone who's in your community who might yeah. be interested in something or adjacent somehow. And that's what I find really frustrating because, you know, there are a lot of bad actors in crypto and they should be held accountable. And that's not the people who are just genuinely curious and experimenting and trying to see what these new tools can bring. And so just like lumping everyone into the same kind of boat seems really counterproductive. But yeah, that's where we are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, and it's also who we are. Like, it's really baked into us. And I, I, you know, to some extent, I mean, yes, it's really worth trying to, as individuals, you know, kind of row back from the brinkmanship, but it is really hard. And, you know, it's that, that very specific, you know, sort of amygdala poking, well, amygdala driven impulses that we have, are, are, you know, I really are just 
being exploited. I mean, I, I, I was, I wonder as a thought experiment, like if you took, imagine if Web3 had come to prominence before the Web2 platforms had really figured out how to press our buttons to gain profit. How, what would people feel? You know, what, what would the culture war look like? Would there even be culture wars? Yeah, I mean, I think there probably would, but but largely, I mean, because of course, crypto has its own share of, of of culture wars with with the maxi wars and and intro fighting over block size and you know, I mean, that's the other side to this, of course, is that you know the the for 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 kind of an impartial outsider, you know, crypto is often characterized as this kind of united front, where of course. Not in the slightest. I mean, like mm-hmm. I'll say quite often. I mean, there's people I I disagree with more than I disagree with anybody in Web two or outside of crypto intra crypto. You know, there are some absolute lunatics who I want nothing to do with. But it's very <laughs> difficult to it's very difficult to kind of convey that in this nascent period where you know, for most people, it's it's considered a, a, a united front. And, mm. and, but I do think that long term, I mean, you know, my hope at least is that as these things become more legible, and as people just begin to understand that there is actually quite a wide and diverse array of of opinions and approaches in the field, what will in- invariably happen is people, you know, start to develop a less coarse understanding of things. And of mm. course, with Web2 and like particularly a Twitter or whatnot, I mean, it's been years now, but it just feels like the coarsening of, of debate has got to the extent where it's kind of inhospitable. You know, it's just like, mm. it's, it's just a, it, it doesn't work anymore. And, and as a result, then you get this kind of cascading effect where many of the most reasonable people I know just don't bother it. You know, so they're yeah. in the discords. They're already whether they're in it's a Web three enabled Discord or your, you know, someone else's or just a random ass Discord. Everyone kind of retreated to the dark forest of mm. private chats or whatever. And so, in actuality, Twitter becomes a lossier and lossier signal for general mm. sentiment on anything because the the people who are most drawn to it are, you know, it's it's the bar fight. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. become and so yeah, so I I think Yeah, but only like what, ten percent of the population's on Twitter. I don't know, even less. It's like actually so, probably even less for the number like of t- bots. It's like, yeah, like a tiny <laughs> fraction. So it's also good to like unplug and like talk to people who are I have many friends who are not at all on Twitter and it's mm. really nice to, <laughs> to see what their filter bubble is serving them. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, but, but generally, but generally I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about it, but I do think that like, yeah, it's a, you know, as you said, it, it, there's something, there's something there where it, it is this kind of, it is this endless opportunity where you feel slighted. And then it, it, in a, in a strange way is it, it, it's like this perfectly designed game of malevolent telephone, you know, <laughs> where where there's always another opportunity to be misread by somebody. I mean, I was joking mm. with someone the other day, a, a friend who, you know, has started tweeting like, advice to people. I won't say who it is because I actually want to invite them on the podcast, but they're really, really well-intentioned, very knowledgeable in the culture industry and has started using Twitter. And, and he was like, God, it's, it's so frustrating. Like I, I put out, you know, this pretty benign, like kind of useful piece of advice. And the only time I get crazy engagement on it is when people get really mad. And I was like, well, that, that to me is Welcome to so, the internet. Well, yeah, but that, that, that to me is so synonymous. I mean, if I, if I go back to like 2015, 2016, when I have to hold my hand up and I contributed to, to some of this ire in, in presenting kind of more flat arguments or more coarse arguments than I would do today, you know, I started to learn pretty quick that the things that work the best on Twitter 
are ultimately, which is funny to go back to actually our conversation about music, it's very synonymous, are ultimately the arguments that can be most easily repurposed for other people's devices. That when you're there and you're giving, you know, your particular opinion on this thing and it has this nuance and there's this room open, it's like, yeah, that's cute, you know, discussing an alternative or whatever. Yeah, that's cute. But when it's something that can ultimately be misinterpreted, that that is the the, the superpower, mm. right? And so now you do have like whole groups of people who I think figured this out, who are like, well, you know, the way to gain notoriety within this particular platform is to present arguments other people can pick up and either get mad at or use to boost their own position, right? Mm. And that's a and that's like a road to crisis. Like that's just a, it's a broken it's a broken means of communication at this point because you know the, the well intentioned are either leaving or or are frustrated and and kind of and kind of deprecated or whatever. You, you, you're not you're not getting that stuff unless you know how to find them. Yeah, makes me think that maybe I should adjust my Twitter strategy to be a bit more uh, provocative. Um, try it out. Try it out. Try oh it out God. for a week, and, it, and it'll work. It'll you'll, work, and then you'll you'll, you'll regret be miserable. It. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I'll just get pulled into bun fights. No, yeah. I, I, I think I, you I, should I'd continue say... focus on building because that's going to make exactly. you happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the but I mean the bun. Yeah, the bun fights always always <laughs> take it out of me. You know, you you have to put you have to put a brave face on me. Just like okay, well, I'll just get on and build. But I I I hate it. I mean, I guess I'm yeah. I I I get well. I suppose I came from a, a sort of touchy feely creative background, and you know, I just feel stuff. And I just you know, I want to do stuff right. I want to build build things. I want to engage in good faith. But it's just a shame that the the most effective way to engage is in bad faith. Well, I don't know. Is that a bit? I mean, maybe that's a bit generalist as well. I it's don't maybe know. the short. It's maybe the shortest path to engagement. You know, yes. I, I don't think it's it's universal in that way. But but it is funny. I mean, we we talked. We we had the the people building context on, and we're talking about in a sense how you know the 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 kiln of speculation around crypto one of the benefits of it in some ways is that there was this weird financial incentive for people to speed run every possible thing that you could do with the tools mm. available at any one point and of course in that there's loads of crashing and burning there's like scams and whatever but by the end of it there are some things that that emerge as kind of resilient and it's funny to me thinking in this com- in this conversation how you know how synonymous that is in a way with twitter i, I think that there's there's people who are like really well-intentioned and have these particular principles and they want to go on Twitter and they want to find other people with that, with those messages. But it's happening in the same kiln where basically a bunch of chancers are trying to speed run every possible configuration of an argument to see if they can get engagement with it, you know? And so it's kind of both like Twitter is incredible. I find, I found so many incredible, thoughtful people on on twitter i mean we we probably know each other from twitter beyond anything else i mean i know of your work but like in terms of actually being in touch with you you know but that's happening and it's happening in the you know the 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 maelstrom kind of the maelstrom (laughs) of 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 all this crap that occasionally you know if i haven't slept very well i'll i'll you know get led into contributing to and then i'll step back Mm. a little bit and it's like it's just the it's just the contemporary condition. It's just what you know what we do now. Well, yeah. hopefully, hopefully people will find each other on these kind of like outrage platforms like Twitter, but then will seamlessly kind of 
move over to an endless where they'll create bountiful and beautiful musical compositions together and find peace and harmony through collaboration. I I mean, that's (laughs) a great way to bring it brand. That's a a (laughs) utopian goal that I I definitely indulge myself in quite a lot. It's my one utopian goal. I think it's true, though. And I mean, I think I think for a lot of people that is, as you said, there's a game like quality to it. I think for a lot of people that is what gaming ends up being, you know, or mm. or even or the Discord group or the whatever is that ultimately you do go to this, you know, horrible junction where like everything is happening at the same time to find your people and then you mm. end up slipping off to other more more wonderful blissful areas where you actually enjoy spending time, you know, and the, the, but the per, but Twitter is kind of a purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it, it, it kind of reminds me just makes me think of my my life in Hackney in East London. It's very much like you go, you kind of meet people on these busy streets and then you squirrel away into these nice little enclaves where you know there are nice restaurants or a nice park or a canal or something and it's all it's kind of quite on top of each other but you can yeah you can both find the strom which is a great place to actually get first contact and then and then find your oasis yeah it's a pub yeah i mean it, they, they are like that's i think you know a public house or a public square right and it's like when you're younger you go to the pub to like find other people because you're not that hooked into things and you Mm. need to like get access and then over time you start participating in a culture and then you're like ah i could just Maybe I'll go to the pub every now and then with a friend, but like I can just, you know, I could just meet you for dinner. You know, we, we don't have to go into, you know, we, we don't have to be in the same environment as the football fight that's happening or whatever in order yeah. to try and accomplish accomplish this, you know, our thoughtful conversation about philosophy or whatever it is you want to do. You don't, you don't have to, like, the two things don't have to coexist in the same space at the same time. Okay, enough complaining about Twitter. I was trying to bring it back into, and Matt went off. You're like, I hate Twitter. Yeah, we definitely had it. We definitely had like a, 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 a therapy session for a there. second there. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So yeah, look, this has been, it's been really, really wonderful. We do have a question that we ask every guest and that question is, what does interdependence mean to you, Tim? You know, when I think of interdependence, I mostly, I mostly think about it on actually on an interpersonal level. And, you know, I mean, there's a whole other strand to like things I'm really interested in, but, you know, psychology, personal development that, you know, I've done a ton of therapy. I've like for a time I was actually training for ordination as a into a Buddhist order. And, you know, I've done I've kind of like experimented with going to like 12 step recovery groups and things like that. So I'm, I'm really interested in all this kind of stuff that so, you know, interdependence for me, the main thing that means is like the opposite of and Really, I to me that means you know codependence is really like not knowing where your shit ends and other else other people's shit starts. And so I think for me, interdependence is the opposite of that. It's like really knowing what is yours, what you you know what you actually have an influence over, and what is other people's, and what you don't have an influence over. And to you know to develop yourself and help to develop other people around you into a state where you can actually really be interdependent it's i think it's quite a high bar actually and it's you know it's it's like a life's work but uh, yeah so ultimately interdependence to me is actually it's a sort of personal psychology thing but i think if we can help learn well learn you know the the tools that help us 
achieve a state of kind of like being able to be independent, interdependent as like personal agents in the world, like they're much more prevalent now. You know, mental health is is talked about in a way that it wasn't like, you know, when our parents were growing up. And, you know, my hope is that these these tools, these frameworks, and this kind of general understanding of ourselves and each other and how we interoperate as you know, beings with psychologies and egos and ids and superegos that that we can, I guess, through personal transformation, actually start to build systems in the world that will, I guess, propagate that that state. Because I think ultimately, you know, what we do with technology, we will be kind of secretly propagating, you know, intergenerational trauma and all these kind of structures that we've grown up into, you know, imperialist structures, etc. So, you know, we're, for me, it's like this game of both individually and collectively learning how we can help ourselves and each other transcend that. That's a very thoughtful answer. Thank you. <laughs> That's a very, very thoughtful answer. And I think I agree. I think, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with it. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great aspiration. Well, you can't disagree um, with it. It was a very personal statement. How are you going to disagree with that? You're wrong. Okay, <laughs> bye. No, 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 no. It, it was, it was a very thoughtful answer and it's, it's actually provoking thought, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. So yeah, of course. Cheers, Holly. Sorry, <laughs> cut that part out. No, no, it's good. It's good that people understand. Um, okay. <laughs> we have to leave that in there too. Yeah. So look, it, it's been absolutely wonderful. We're going to put links to all your projects and your person in the show notes. And uh, yeah, look, it's been, it's been really, really wonderful. Yeah. It's been amazing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, th- this is kind of, this has kind of been one of the highlights of my year that I've been looking forward to talk with like my, my, I'll, I'll go out and say that you're my two favorite giga brains. So, uh, that's really, yeah, really thank nice. You. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's, um, no, that's, that's really, that's really wonderful. And we'll have to have, yeah, there's going to be plenty of opportunity for you to return. So yeah, just let us know when. Thank you. When that's uh, when that's when that's interesting. When you have something to share, that's really yeah. It's it's been it's been really nice, and you know, and definitely from our side, you know, we're coming from we we're coming from like a very shared shared but different kind of history, a cultural you know kind of kind of cultural scenes scenes and Mm. and just perspectives. I think so. It's it's also really really nice and like cathartic to get to. To, to get to to speak with you about you know some of this complex chaotic shit yeah. yeah and really optimistic to see you building and embracing new complicated and messy ideas you know we're all we're all struggling through these new topics mm. together and having really cool examples to be able to point to makes it all like a little bit easier for each of us who are kind of experimenting <laughs> in this space so thank you for that yeah well thank you thank you awesome <laughs> Well, look, wonderful. Yeah. As Holly said, super spiriting, really looking forward to seeing where Endless goes and yeah, just have like a, have a wonderful week. And you, thank you. It's been amazing. Loved it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.